Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very happy to say that we have Virginia Scharf on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Women Jefferson Loved. I think pretty much everybody in the English-speaking world, or maybe I should say everyone in the United States, knows that Thomas Jefferson had a liaison with one of his slaves or at least that is what is alleged, and that was, of course, Sally Hemings. But Jefferson had a lot of other women in his life, and in fact, he was surrounded by women, at least at home, throughout his entire life. Virginia does a terrific job of telling us about the lives of those women and how they affected Jefferson and what Jefferson thought about women. It's really kind of a fascinating story. It's really Jefferson not as public figure, but Jefferson as private figure, And he had a complicated and interesting private life. And one of the things that Virginia well points out is that this sort of treatment makes Jefferson a much more full-blooded individual. That is an actual person rather than a statue. And it's always unfortunate when people become statues. So I enjoyed talking to Virginia today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Without further delay, here it is. Hi, Virginia. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Doing great. It's sunny here in Albuquerque. Oh, that's very nice. I should tell our listeners that we have Virginia Scharf on the show, and we'll be talking about her uh, terrific new book, and terrifically well-received book, I should say. I've read some of the reviews. Uh, the Women Jefferson Loved. It's a great title. I, was, I said it to my wife, and she smiled. I mean, that sounds really good. It's a very nice title. I would tell you the title of my first book, but it really is very boring. Um, but that's a good title. It really is. I mean, yeah, so, so kudos to you on that. I've read the book. It's fascinating. It's well-written. Uh, you know, it's it's a really it's an interesting story. It's a side of Jefferson's life which we haven't dealt with before on this show. We've dealt with Jefferson a couple of times. We dealt with Jefferson uh, as a warrior, and I think we dealt with Jefferson as a uh, a politician, but not not as some not as a family man. And as some of the listeners to this show will know, that uh, the the nature of Jefferson's what we now know is probably his extended family uh, is uh, is somewhat different than we had thought. And it's it's a very interesting story. And Virginia does a wonderful job of. Um, telling us about the about this side of Jefferson's life and, and really also about these these other people who were around him but take up kind of a central role in her book. So it's a, it's a terrific and interesting read. So I would recommend that you go out and buy it. Um, Virginia, hey. maybe – yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, the, the, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I'm a child of the Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri and uh, a product of the 1960s, I guess, and I went off as a – a freshman um, at Yale University. I was in the first class of women to go all the way through Yale. Mm-hmm. And after I was at, at Yale and I had about three or four years in the, in the East, um, decided that it was time for me to move west. So I went and got a master's in journalism in Ber- at Berkeley because I really loved to write and I thought I would be a really great reporter. And it was the heyday of new journalism. And the next thing I knew, I was having to actually interview live people and (laughs) uh, having to ask living people hard questions just turned out to be something I wasn't at all cut out for. 
So um, not not good at that as you are here. No, so uh, I'm better at answering them than asking them. I'm afraid. So I ended up deciding that I would go back and and get a master's in history, and was for a variety of complicated reasons. Um, moving to Laramie, Wyoming. So I did that at the University of Wyoming and finished up my graduate training at the University of Arizona and studied with the wonderful women's historian Karen Anderson mm-hmm. and and with Bill Sewell, who's a great social and intellectual historian, and and have actually been thinking about, I've started writing papers about, about Jefferson and about women. My, my training is as a women's historian. I've done some Western history. I've written some mystery novels. I'm kind of all over the map, but uh, for me, this project of thinking about the women in Thomas Jefferson's life has been something that I've been kind of um, tempted to do for many, many years and then finally came back to. Mm-hmm. I started teaching here at the University of New Mexico in 1989. Mm-hmm. So I've been here almost 21 years total, mm-hmm. and I have loved being here. And I also have a position as Women of the West Chair at the Autry Museum in L.A., mm-hmm. where I do consulting and have been working on exhibits and programs and publications, and that's been a lot of fun, too. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. I always like it when people stretch their legs a little bit. You know, I mean, I, they're, they're, historians are often very accomplished people. I think that too many of them just do one thing, and it's nice to... Uh, it's nice to hear about somebody that's that's got lots of irons and different fires. So well, I and I think it's good for our students too, Marshall, and for anybody who's interested in history. There are lots of ways to be a historian and do history and explain history. And so I've tried to explore the, a lot of those different options, as you have as well. I have, yeah, no, I try, I, I, I do try that. I don't, I don't think I succeed as well as you, and don't respond. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, t- tell us, um, you, you've broached this topic already a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how you came to write The Women Jefferson Loved. Well, I've been a fan of Thomas Jefferson since I was a small child. And uh, I I think that first, um, a lot of people come to history reading those landmark biographies, things like that, those orange back books. This is of a certain generation, maybe, but maybe they have better better bindings on them now than they used to. I'm sure they do. But I was just fascinated by Jefferson, and I remember when my parents took us east to go to the 1964 World's Fair and decided we needed to see the sights of Washington, D.C., and my father was a fan of Jefferson, so we went to Monticello, and that made a a huge impression on me. Everybody remembers the dumbwaiter and the... Uh, the the polygraph the you know the copying machine that Jefferson made and all the ingenious things and the beautiful place, so I've been fascinated by Jefferson for a long time, and then when I um, I guess when I had my kind of feminist awakening and decided that women's history was was the place for me to be, um, I was interested in knowing whether Thomas Jefferson was. Uh, a man who believed that women and men were created equal, and uh, turns out he didn't. He believed women and men were created for complementary purposes in nature, and I can talk more about that if if you want me to. Mm-hmm. I probably will talk more about that. So um, at first, I was really mad at him. <laughs> um, I wanted him to be a proto-feminist because he was a, a, an advocate of democracy. And when he disappointed me in that way, um, some of my mentors said to me, well, all right, you know, that's a pretty good project, but everybody's written about Jefferson, and, and uh, maybe you, you should do this other thing for your dissertation. I had written some papers about women in the automobile. So I ended up writing a book called Taking the Wheel, Women in the Coming of the Motor Age, and I put Jefferson on the shelf 
for a while, but I have never quite fully given up on it and then recently had the opportunity to come back to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a terrific story. I know that uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything I want to write like that, and I wish there were, but there's not. <laughs> well, you know, I envy one you. One of the things that happened for me, Marshall, is I had a great literary agent who unfortunately passed away this oh. year named Elaine Coster, and she used to take me out to lunch, and, and I got her because I've written these four mystery novels under uh-huh. the nom de plume of Virginia Swift. And so she always would take me to the same place for lunch, her favorite place where she had a table. She was in many ways kind of an old school agent agent. And she finally said to me, she'd never paid any interest at all to my career as a historian. She just wanted me to kind of keep churning out these mystery novels. But I got elected to this wonderful organization called the Society of American Historians, which is at Columbia. And mm-hmm. It's an organization that, um, that recognizes scholarly and literary excellence. They say Ellen Nevins founded it in the 30s at Columbia. Oh, yeah, and she'd heard of that. You know, because she's mm-hmm. from New York, right? Yeah. And she'd heard of Columbia, and she'd heard of the society. Yeah, so right. she finally said to me, well, I guess you write these history books. Tell me what history book you burn to write. Uh-huh. We never get asked that question. No, I don't. I mean, nobody, people say things like, well, here's a piece of work that needs doing. Yeah. Right? You know, or here is a hole you can fill in the historiography or whatever. And instead, here was somebody giving me permission to write a book that I burned to write. Wow. And I... Sat there and I had a wonderful lunch with her, and uh, Candace Bergen was sitting across. <laughs> the room, you know? I mean, all everything was just exactly as it should have been. And I finally said, "Oh, I know what I know what this book is. It's yeah. this book that I put away years ago. Yeah. I want to do this book." That's a great story. <laughs> Did you ask for Candace Bergen's uh, autograph? No, but I just kept looking at her thinking, could I, should I? <laughs> it's very funny. And then, I i mean, it, it, this is a, it's a ritzy restaurant in New York where yep. a lot of Candace Bergen types I go. Yeah. I'm always sort of uh, agog when I would yeah. go there with yeah. uh, with Elaine. And so it was just, it, it, the whole experience was absolutely perfect. The funny part about this is that the real reason that I had put this the project aside, apart from the fact that I thought the, the women in cars thing would be a fun thing to do, is that I wrote a, um, I wrote a paper that one of my pre- um, professors said, well, you really need to get this paper published. It was about what did Thomas Jefferson think about women. And uh-huh. that was where I first really started digging into the archives on this thing. Yeah. And I sent, he said, you got to get this published. You should send it to the William and Mary Quarterly, which is the best journal in the field, right? Mm-hmm. So I sent it off to the William and Mary Quarterly, and this would have been, oh, I guess long about 1981. Mm-hmm. And the editor at that time was a guy named Michael McGifford, a lovely person. And he sent me back. It took forever for the reviews to come back. And, and he said, well, I contacted three people. One of them bagged out on me, which academics have a tendency to do. Mm-hmm. The second one actually never wrote anything down, but said she thought this thing needed some revision. <laughs> and the third, I hesitated to send to you because of the tone, mm-hmm. but I'm sending it anyway. And if you are a graduate student, which I suspect, maybe you have something else you could send me. Yeah, right. But we can't publish this. And this yeah. third review was an absolute screed about yeah. you know, Thomas Jefferson didn't have gender ideology. That was invented by feminists, you know, and yeah, okay. I, in the last 20 years or something. So their idea was... Mm-hmm. Just because there had not been at his time a kind of movement for women's rights, an organized movement, that he had never really given any thought to the position of women. Mm. Uh, And, you know, anyway, um, so I was so devastated by this that um, 
that I did something that I really am very sorry that I that I did, which is that I burned the review. Oh, fireplace. And uh, now I wish I had it. Um, but what was real funny about it too is that, um, I, and I figured. So between people telling me that there was nothing there, that I couldn't write about this, that this was some presentist fantasy, and some of my mentors saying, well, you know, do this other thing. It's, this, this is a much more wide open kind of field. I just thought, all right, I won't, I won't do that. Yeah. And 10 years later, I get this letter from when I'm an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico uh, from Michael McGifford, who was still running the William and Mary Quarterly at that mm-hmm. time, saying, we have this piece about Thomas Jefferson and women. Would you review this for oh, us? Boy. He said, nobody's done anything about this oh, boy. since that time. So, and now there's been a certain amount more interest. There's some wonderful books um, coming out about about Jefferson's family life and things like that. Yeah. And there have been some, some great books about it. So um, the time finally was right for me. But I had been, I want to say to anybody who's out there and feeling really discouraged, like, well, either no one will care or they'll hate me for doing this project or there's nothing there. And you really, really want it. It's what you burn to do. Go ahead and do it. It may yeah. take you 30 years, but you'll get there. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good point. No, I've been rejected by all of the best journals. So. <laughs> uh, also, another, a friend of mine, was, actually a friend of mine's mother, who's an academic, uh, said that when you submit papers, you should uh, decide where you want to send it and then decide the second place you want to send it, and you should make up both envelopes. Right? Oh, and so you send it to the first one, and then the minute you get the rejection from the first one, you send the second one. You See, know, that, that's yeah. a, I'm going to start using that with That my is a students. smart thing, isn't it? Yeah, yep. that's right. Ruth Perry. Ruth Perry, if you're listening, that's a, that story is attributed to you. Is so. Liz Perry her mother? I don't know about Liz Perry. I don't know who Liz Perry is. Liz Perry is a historian of women. Liz and Lou Perry. I wonder if they're, if they're her I parents. Don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I have absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> so in, in any event, that's it. Yes, I thought that was a great, a great wise thing right there. So let's actually dig into this material. You know, when it, we'll talk about it in due time, but Jefferson's family, extended or not, is a, the topic of some political discussion as well, and we'll, we'll get into that. Now, you start the book with, uh, if I recall correctly, Jefferson's mother, is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, Jane not, Randolph Jefferson. Right. So tell us about uh, Jane Randolph Jefferson. Well, Jane Randolph Jefferson, there have been kind of two schools of thought about Jane Randolph Jefferson. One was that he loved her, and the other was that he hated her. Um, and obviously, you know, that's, uh, that's something that she's had kind of um, rising and falling fortunes among historians. There was a theory that Jefferson hated his mother that was pretty popular in the 1950s when there was this whole school of thought that women were emasculating their sons and this whole kind of momism um, theory of psychoanalysis. But this is all based on the fact, the love and the hate is uh, all based on the fact that he wrote very, very little about her. Almost nothing, in fact. And um, But what we know as social historians is that there are lots of ways to get at a person's life um, apart from letters to or from that person or, and apart from the public pronouncements of somebody else, namely Thomas Jefferson. So what I say about Jane Jefferson, um, and a lot of people have just said, well, you know, since he didn't write much about her and when he did it was pretty brief, um, we'll just leave her alone. She can't be known. And I, I say about her, as I do about all these women, that compared to Thomas Jefferson, who left us, after all, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents and a mm-hmm. rich material legacy and was president of the United States, after all, compared to him, if he's the benchmark of who we can know something about, 
then uh, we'll never know anything about anyone. <laughs> you know, it can't be, he can't be the standard for this. But compared to 99% of the people who've ever lived and who've lived in the United States and, and who've led lives close to the grave, we can know a lot about these women. Mm-hmm. So um, I looked at all kinds of family documents. I looked at letters to and from other members of, um, of the Jefferson family, looked at some oral reminiscences, looked at Jefferson's um, memoranda books, which have been wonderfully, wonderfully edited by uh, James Barron, Senator Stanton. Um, we have really great stuff to know about the life of Jane Jefferson. And this is somebody who came over. To, she was born in England. She was the oldest of eight children, uh, uh, or actually nine children, six of whom were girls. Uh, but she and her little brother came over on a, a, a bus. Uh, I'm sorry, not on a bus, on a ship. Her father was was a ship's ca- a merchant and ship's captain, and uh, and was also going to go back and take up planting. He was a member of one of the um, most powerful families in Virginia, the Randolph family. I, um, uh, Isham Randolph. Her mother was an English woman, and they came over when little Jane was maybe, well, certainly less than five years old. So she had been born in England, but grew up most of her life on Dungeness Plantation, her father's plantation in Virginia. So she's really the first generation of women in her particular family to come of age, to grow up and come of age as a slaveholding woman. And so this means she has to learn a a certain set of behaviors and a certain way of thinking about the world and about other people and learn the habits of command. Um, Also learn how to use the kind of plants and animals that she finds at hand there. Her mother was at first described uh, by a visitor to their household when they lived in in London as um, a pretty sort of woman. And seemingly very gallant and or gracious at entertaining. Well, she has to do a lot of that when they when they come to Virginia and they are running plantation. But later on, she's seen as a kind of dragon. This is Jefferson's grandmother, and so little Jane grows up as the oldest girl in a very large family and a family where the mother is made, I think, really much harder person by the life of being a plantation mistress. Mm-hmm. So all of this stuff is in there. You know, the mix is in there. Her father is a sea captain and a slaveholder and also somebody who was um, the adjutant general of Virginia, a man who had to make judicial decisions about, for example, slaves who were found to be rebellious um, and really draconian kinds of decisions. So this is not somebody who is going to be, he's known as a really great host and a kind of gallant, hospitable Virginian but um, not a man famed for his tender mercies, shall mm-hmm. we say. So all of this stuff goes into the making of Jefferson's mother. But she said at the same time, she's the person who taught him how to garden, mm-hmm. Marshall. Mm-hmm. She's the person who made sure, and we know this from the memorandum books and from her, her husband Peter Jefferson's estate records, plantation records, paid money to have her children taught to sing and dance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got... There, I think the ingredients of Virginia plantation life as we know it. We have horrible things being done to people in the name of enforcing the life of enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. We also have the creation of a gracious home, a hospitable place, a place of beauty, 
where gardening is done, where the cooking is good, where people love each other, and where they sing and dance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the life I really wanted to, I wanted to bring before my readers. I mm-hmm. wanted them to see those contradictions and understand that we're not dealing with cardboard figures here. We're dealing with 3D people who are living in compromised worlds, deeply compromised worlds, trying to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we can say, um, and there are little snippets of information about Jefferson and his mother um, that, that led me to believe that he cared deeply about her. There, and I'll tell you why I think that's the case. Um, first of all, when he went to build his house on the mountaintop, he built it next door to her plantation, Shadwell mm-hmm. Plantation. He could, he had many estates. He could have gone far away. He married an heiress, and we'll be, get into talking about his wife, Martha. Um, they, I mean, they could have moved across Virginia if he'd wanted to get away from his mother, but instead he chose to live next door. He lived closer to her than any of her other uh, children who actually hived off on their own. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, he took care of her. Um, this was a woman whose husband died. Jefferson's father, Peter Jefferson, died when he was 14 years old. He would become the guy who was in charge of the plantations when he came of age, when he reached the age of 21. But for seven years, um, Jane Randolph Jefferson ran that plantation basically through her husband's executor. She was the kind, we have a kind of picture now of plantation mistresses as being incredibly competent. and, And basically, I think we had this fantasy that every one of them was so competent that she was kind of a thwarted executive who lived under the doctrine of coverture. But I see her as being a person, and and Susan Kern, who's also written about Jane Jefferson, whose work I admire enormously, um, Susan sees Jane as being a little more financially competent than I do. I read the records as her having been very good at running her plantation, making sure people did what they needed to do, and making sure that things happened the way they they needed to happen, and Mm -hmm. that everybody got fed, and, and everybody did their work, and everybody did their dancing and singing and fiddling and, and studying. But um, I don't see her as being somebody who is very good with the, with the books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she would go to the executors and say, pay my bills. I've been charging things at the store. or I've been ordering things at the store. Same thing with her son. And her son, when he took over, was absolutely meticulous in taking care of her accounts. Mm-hmm. And later on, seven years after she died, he gets a letter from a guy saying, hey, you know, you need to pay this account of hers. And he, and he writes back to the guy and he says, you know, um, I did everything I could to make sure I don't have, I have a record that, that I paid this bill. And I'll pay you again if you need to, but I did everything I could to make sure my mother had credit and quiet while she lived. <laughs> That's a nice expression, isn't it? Yeah, I love that expression. Somebody I want somebody to give me credit. Yeah, I want credit and quiet. Give it to me. Can I get that, and, please? And so I thought that was a kind of an affectionate yeah. moment. I, I like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you read enough of Jefferson's stuff, you really get to st- where you start to hear his voice. It's funny. I, uh, there was a moment when uh, he was writing a letter to one of his granddaughters, and people have said they don't think he had a southern accent, but I can hear kind of southern cadences sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one of the granddaughters <laughs> writes to him, and he writes back to her, and he said, you know, um, and please say H-O-W, and then a second word, D-apostrophe-Y-E. How do ye? Yeah. You could read it mm-hmm. at, to your sisters. But I read it as, and please say howdy to your sisters. Howdy, yeah. Sure. That's you cool. know, so the howdy, <laughs> Jefferson. Yeah. I, I kind of like that. Yeah. But the biggest piece of evidence that I have, um, 
about Jefferson's uh, affection for his mother's. Um, there are two. One is a letter that he wrote um, to his son-in-law when his son-in-law was just about to get into a duel. And, uh, and he's talking about the fact that um, if his son-in-law got into a duel, that he'd be leaving uh, his wife, uh, a grieving widow with many children, and that she would be absolutely devastated and ill-equipped to, to lead a, um, to, to, to take care of her family. And in that, I think I felt a kind of empathy for the position his own mother had been left in. Mm-hmm. So you can really feel a, an element of true grief in this piece of advice to his son, like, don't go off getting yourself in a duel. Um, so that's one, one really strong piece of evidence, I think, the reading of that letter, and people can read it when they read the book and, and judge for themselves. The other is a letter that he wrote to his uncle on the eve of the American Revolution. His mother, uh, Jane Jefferson, died in March of 1776. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is the moment when Thomas Jefferson is just, you know, basically putting his head in a noose, right? Um, imagine being a mother who's been depending on this wonderful son for many years um, and, and, and seeing him courting the ire of the crown, you know, seeing him stepping ever more into the revolution, leading the charge into the revolution. She must have been scared to death for him. And he was, let us say, pretty busy in the spring of 1776 and spending more and more time further and further from home. And during this period, he had an uncle who was Jane's um, younger brother who'd gone back to England, William Randolph, who was writing to Thomas Jefferson. You've got to imagine this. Sometime in that spring between the time Jane died and, and the declaration and, and July, the uncle writes and says, you know, dear nephew, um, would you please go to my plantation and collect some debts that are owed me and send me the money in, in England because all of this business with the colonial boycott and all this stuff uh, is really playing heck with my business. And imagine writing to the leader of the revolution asking him, to, you know, <laughs> you're the Tory uncle, right? right. Uh, would you collect my debts for me, please, and send them because you people are just messing up my business. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson writes to him and he says, you know, uh, I, I can't really do this right now. I'm pretty busy. Um, and and I, we wish that you had stayed here among us, and then we might be able to help you out. And then he finishes up by saying, you know, and, and my mother is dead. She died, um, ex, you know, at certain, at the time that she died in March. Uh, we think of an apoplexy, period, and that's it. And historians have read this very brief mention of his mother's death, as a suggestion that, you know, if he didn't have anything more to say about that um, to to this uncle, then he really didn't care about her. Yeah. Right? But at the same time, I read it on the heels of that as a man who cares about and believes that men were made to provide for and protect women. Mm-hmm. And women were made to obey and to nurture and to please men. This is what he thought nature had created, um, was two kinds of humans, right? And here was the uncle who was the next youngest to Jane, a a brother who had abandoned her, who had abandoned his family in Virginia and gone off to seek his own interests in England. And he's saying to him, you know, well, look, you know, you've abandoned all of us. You've abandoned your, your, your sister. And oh, by the way, if you care, she's dead. So I see this as part of a pretty bitter and sarcastic letter to the uncle. 
And the way I read that is of the grieving son saying, if you were a real man and if you really cared, you wouldn't have left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is another reason why the guy shouldn't have abandoned. So these are the kinds of fragments that we see. There's an oral tradition in the the Randolph family, the Jefferson Randolph family, that Jane Jefferson was pretty well read for her time and that she was somebody who had a kind of optimistic outlook on the world that her son inherited from her. And I'm not sure I see any reason to doubt that. So um, that's really the way I see Jane Jefferson. And I think there was an awful lot more there than than people had led me to believe when I went looking for her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That seems reasonable to me. One thing we should say about Jane Randolph is that she was uh, pregnant a lot. I mean, oh she, my gosh! Yeah, I she, mean, these went really. Uh, there are two kinds of women in this world: um, the ones who were great breeders and the ones who were killed by childbearing. Mm-hmm. And the Randolph women, it seemed like they had a genetic predisposition to survive childbirth. So her mother had had nine children, and most of, most of whom survived to adulthood. Jane herself had nine pregnancies. Um, six of her kids survived to adulthood. She actually, two of her daughters um, died before she did, which was, you know, that's a terrible and devastating thing. And then um, some some sons that had died as babies. Um, she was the first of this line. Of, she and then her daughter, um, uh, several of her daughters had many children. Uh, her granddaughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, had uh, 12 children, 11 of whom lived to adulthood. So this is a line of women who did have, um, I guess, the, the biological capacity to, to survive these incredibly difficult and scary and repeated pregnancies. Um, some members of the Jefferson extended family did not have such good luck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no, that's right. So how did uh, growing up in a large family affect Jefferson himself? I mean, was he close with any of his... Um, Siblings? Well, he had, I mean, and he grew up in a family of sisters, too. Yeah. So that's something I think that it need be said. He had only one brother who, who survived to adulthood. It was his youngest brother, Randolph. They were not particularly close, although, like um, all of his siblings, Thomas Jefferson tried to take care of Randolph, who, um, Randolph was kind of a good old boy. Uh-huh. And, you know, basically for him, it was all about growing tobacco and hunting with his dogs. And uh-huh. so you read their correspondence, the, the, the contrast between the two guys are, are pretty, pretty impressive. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's a moment when Randolph writes him a letter and he's like, and it's all about, you know, nope, I can't make it to our, our sister's funeral, but would you save me one of them dog puppies you got around the house? Uh-huh. It's just crazy. Randolph could never get around to fixing a road, to his house. He just, Randolph is kind of uh, more of a backwoods dude. Right. Um, And, you know, compared to one of the most cosmopolitan people in the world, let alone in America. So that's interesting. But Jefferson had a a, a bevy of sisters, was close, very close to his oldest sister, Jane, who was named after her mother. But she, she only lived to be 26 years old. Um, died of, uh, of unknown causes at that point, and he was very, very um, heartbroken by her death. Close to his sister Martha, who was married to his best friend, Dabney Carr, and um, Martha Jefferson Carr was a very close aunt to all of the, the Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson's children. Um, he had a sister, Elizabeth, who was uh, mentally disabled, and he did everything he could to take care of her, Another sister who married an alcoholic, he, did, he was trying to take care of her. So here's a man who grew up in a house full of sisters, 
um, and really took on the responsibility of being a kind of paterfamilias to, mm-hmm. to his siblings later in his life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So let's go on and move on and talk about Martha. I think many people know who Martha is, or at least they think they do. But why don't you <laughs> tell us who Martha was? Well, I mean, Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson. When Thomas Jefferson first started courting um, his the woman who would become his wife, Martha Wales Skelton, she was a young widow, beautiful young, auburn-haired, pretty, vivacious, artistic, uh, musically talented widow with a small child, with a, a, a little boy from her first marriage to this guy, Bather Skelton, who was a guy that had, I guess, Jefferson had known slightly at William and Mary. Um, they inhabited the same circle. She was an heiress. She was the oldest daughter of a guy named John Wales, who, about whom we will hear more, mm-hmm. um, who was a, a, a man who was a self-made planter and lawyer in Virginia, had been a poor poor boy from Wales who who worked his way across to Virginia on a ship and and basically attracted the patronage of powerful people in Virginia and, and rose through society that way. So John Wales, his oldest daughter by his first wife, was, was Martha. Um, her, she was married at the age of 18, and then her husband died just within the first year of their marriage, and she's left with this, with this little kid um, who actually died before she and Jefferson got married. She was a person who sustained loss after loss after loss. Um, her mother died bearing her. Mm-hmm. Her mother, Martha Epps Wales, was a one of these women who just didn't have good luck with childbirth. And, and mm-hmm. undoubtedly, the medical practices of the day made things worse for a lot of these women. Mm-hmm. Um, Martha herself would end up dying of complications of childbirth, had eight pregnancies, I believe. Only two of her children lived to adulthood. Two daughters lived to adulthood. And one of those, her daughter Mary, or Polly Jefferson, um, actually also would die of complications of childbirth. Um, yet a fourth generation of Jefferson, Wales, Randolph women, um, and Randolph Bankhead, who's Patsy Jefferson's daughter, died in childbirth. So one of the things that I see in this line of Martha Wales's descendants and, and her, also of her mother is that you have a, a family tree. Thomas Jefferson talked about the tree of liberty being needing to be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants every 20 years, but the Jefferson family tree is watered with the blood of mothers Mm, mm, every 20 years. mm -hmm. Um, Martha was a person who managed to maintain a positive outlook, I think, um, in spite of the fact that she suffers loss after loss after loss, in spite of the repeated assaults on her body by pregnancy. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, there was any kind of assault on the part of Thomas Jefferson that caused this pregnancy. I think they had a, a, a passionate marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, every piece of evidence that I've seen suggests this. But um, this is also a person who is has been portrayed as a kind of... Um, I don't know, a pushover, I guess you would say, Marshall. People, historians have said that that Jefferson liked pleasing and kind of timid and, and uh, meltingly feminine women. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is also a person who knew how to get her way through manipulation and through a kind of passive um, uh, influence on people when she couldn't exercise her power directly. And I think she was real good at that. Mm-hmm. She got Jefferson to do a lot of things she wanted him to do. Um, one of the most important things she got him to do when 
when uh, when they married was that she got him she had inherited this family of half siblings her father had three wives and then took up with his uh, his housekeeper basically who was a um a, a half african half english daughter of an english sea captain and an enslaved african woman and her name was elizabeth hemmings she's known to us as betty hemmings mm-hmm. betty hemmings was the concubine of martha jefferson's father mm-hmm. And Martha Jefferson's father, John Wales, had six children with Betty Hemings, the youngest of whom is the famous Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. And when Martha Jefferson married Thomas Jefferson, she inherited the Hemings family. And Thomas Jefferson had a house full of people who were enslaved people that he referred to as his servants who had been serving in his mother's house. He knew all their families. They had been installed in his household. When Martha comes in, the Hemingses take over the primary roles in the household. Mm-hmm. So she brought an entire shadow family with her to that household. Mm-hmm. And I think that bespeaks a certain power to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. And these people served as domestics then to some extent. Yeah, they you did. Know. I mean, they did everything from, um, you know, James Hemings, who later is going to be, who's, who's Sally's older brother, um, was a, a Thomas Jefferson's kind of body man, you know, his valet. Yeah. And her, his brother, Robert, also had served as Jefferson's valet, was with Jefferson when he was in Philadelphia at the Second Continental Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Hemings, who was a brother of hers, who was actually not a, a half-brother, um, was Jefferson's kind of major domo, his, his butler in his house. Um, others of the Hemings siblings served as as maids and cooks and um, did all kinds of stuff around the Jefferson household, but they were definitely considered to be a favored group of people. They were highly skilled. They learned carpentry. They learned music. They learned haute cuisine. Um, and in, in most cases, they managed to secure something look, that looked like freedom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So to move on just a little bit, uh, Martha dies. Uh, yeah, she young. dies in childbirth. Yeah. Um, devastating to Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he was absolutely unhinged by this. And they had had, uh, I mean, he he referred to their marriage as 10 years of uncheckered happiness. Well, if you're having eight babies and half of them yeah. are miscarriages and a lot of them die and you're by, and you almost die several yeah, times right. in that, you know, I'm not sure. I think I would say at, at, at least the happiness is checkered um, for Martha. She's, she's sick a lot of that yeah, time right. and, and heartbroken a lot of that time. But incredibly resilient, and they had, they made a kind of life together that he loved, and that he would gloss over with this incredibly idealistic nostalgia, and uses his kind of template for what what domestic life should be like. Mm-hmm. Um, she dies in 1782, and he is left a widower with three small children, the, the youngest of whom is the baby Lucy Elizabeth, who uh, who doesn't survive to her third birthday. But basically what he does is um, goes into retirement for a while and then he gets invited to by the government to go to Paris as, as minister to the French government to negotiate the Treaty of, of Peace um, and then ends up finally going to Paris in, 19, in 1784 with his oldest daughter, Patsy Jefferson, Mar- mm-hmm. Martha Jefferson, and leaving his two younger daughters with, with Martha's sister, with an aunt, so they, um, he never sees his youngest daughter again, and that's left his, his mm. younger daughter, Polly, back in Virginia while he and, and the older daughter are off in France. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's an incredibly hard thing to imagine a man leaving those kids. Yeah. 
but he also knew that he was going to have a public life. They were very young. He thought they should be with somebody who was like a mother to them, who was their aunt, and who, in fact, becomes the kind of surrogate mother to his younger daughter, Polly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So let's talk about uh, Sally Hemings. Tell us a little bit about her background before we get into the question of a liaison, or more than a liaison, really, between <laughs> well, Jefferson and I mean, Sally. I think- what the way I want people to really understand this family, and one of the things that I that I feel, felt really powerfully as I had read my way through all of the documentary evidence that's available, through the DNA entities, through probability studies. I mean, we can talk about what kind of evidence there is for a liaison, but I, up until very recently, there I had seen nobody dispute the idea that Sally Hemings and Martha Jefferson were half sisters. It wasn't brought up much. And the reason that it wasn't brought up is that I think we have a habit of thinking uh, in apartheid terms about American history. Mm -hmm. Because we had a Jim Crow uh, society for so long, because of slavery followed by segregation, we have tended to think of our history as a segregated thing. And so, you know, we, uh, in order to maintain a kind of whiteness, of the history of somebody like Thomas Jefferson. They just didn't talk about the Hemingses mm-hmm. for many years, mm-hmm. a servant or whatever. They would be sort of glancingly and obliquely referred to, or absolutely, you know, the attempt would be to erase and deny this rumor that persisted from Jefferson's time to our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sally Hemings, nobody denied until very recently or has tried to, to, to throw cold water on the idea that this is a woman a young girl, a little kid, a baby, who came into Martha Wales Skelton's family um, as her father's child, right? Mm-hmm. And as one of six children, it's impos- it seems to me impossible that Martha and her, her free sisters would not have known that the Hemingses were their father's children when there are six of them, mm-hmm. um, uh, who are the, the six youngest, younger of Betty Hemings's children after she's born six other children to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sally Hemings is a person who had one African grandparent and three English grandparents. Mm-hmm. She was um, described as um, mighty near white was the phrase that one person used. Decidedly good looking uh, is a phrase that Thomas Jefferson's own grandson, Jeff Randolph, used. And somebody who occupied a very privileged position in the household and who was sent actually along with the two youngest Jefferson daughters when when thomas jefferson took patsy off to to paris sally is sent with the younger ones um polly and and lucy off to this aunt's plantation place and when the time comes when the youngest daughter dies of whooping cough thomas jefferson finds out about this and he says you gotta send polly to me i i need it i'm he was afraid he would never see polly again um, send her with a, a responsible woman, somebody who's been inoculated against smallpox, somebody who's a really, you know, that will take really good care of her, or send her with um, a white woman or a white man. He, they were looking for somebody who would be a responsible chaperone for Polly Jefferson to go to, to make this incredibly dangerous trip um, across the ocean to join Jefferson and her older sister, uh, Patsy, in Paris. They end up sending Sally Hemings. At the time, Polly Jefferson's nine years old. Sally Hemings at this point is maybe 14 years old mm-hmm. and had not been inoculated against smallpox. And so what I think that tells us about Polly, about Sally Hemings is 
This is somebody who the aunt and uncle, at any rate, and Thomas Jefferson, who must have known about this, known who was coming, um, they thought she was responsible enough, trustworthy enough, and that, that Polly trusted her enough that they sent her as Polly's chaperone to go to France. So this is, that says something about her, and, and the evidence we have is that she would, they were very affectionate, the two girls, that, um, that um, Sally was a very accommodating kind of person. I think she was a, a pretty competent person, although I think she was uh, naive about the, certainly, I mean, Paris must have blown her mind good mm-hmm. and well. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is somebody who had, who'd grown up on a plantation and she was not, I say she was, she was uneducated and, um, uh, provincial, but she was not innocent because mm-hmm. she knew something about, she lived through the American revolution. She'd mm-hmm. come of age in the American revolution. This is somebody who survived really two revolutions because of course, um, when they get to France, they're there through the beginning mm-hmm. of the French revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what does the, uh, supposed, Relationship between, like a sexual relationship, let's call it that. Yeah, let's call uh, it between, that. <laughs> uh, between uh, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, when does it start? How old is she? Um, well, I think she was probably 16 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may have started younger. Um, certainly lots of young slave girls are having babies by that time. But mm-hmm. my guess is that it starts when she's about 16 years old. I don't see any evidence that it started before the winter of 1788, 1789, they go home um, in, in the fall of 1789. And according to Sally Hemings' son, she was pregnant at that time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we, we, we don't have absolutely firm evidence that that's true. And there's no record of a surviving child. I mean, it may be what her son said is that the baby died very, very early. Mm-hmm. But um, the theory is anyway that she, that, that she was pregnant when she went home. And that she was a free woman in France, but that she'd agreed to go home because Jefferson had promised her that all of her children would be free. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, there's a question about this, and, and, and it, it's, it's a controversial thing. I mean, wh- what are we to think of a master who has a sexual liaison with a teenage slave? He's by by his, the way, how, how old was Jefferson at this time? He's 43 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know... Sure. There's a kind of a predatory aspect to this, mm-hmm. and I cannot deny that there's a there is certainly this is a powerless young woman. This is an extremely powerful and sophisticated man, white man, free man, prominent man. There's an element of victimization in this relationship, but we have to think in terms of what are the choices that are available to a girl like Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. Nobody is saying to her, you know, now you can go out there and be. Um, ambassador to France, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't have a lot of options. Mm-hmm. What is the option for a, a free girl of mixed parentage who doesn't speak really fluent French, who had just begun to learn French, who didn't have a lot of marketable skills in the middle of another revolution? This is a girl who has seen the redcoats riding up to the uh, to to Monticello, who had who knew of a plantation, Martha Jefferson plantation, Elk Hill, that had been laid waste mm-hmm. um, by Cornwallis's soldiers. She knew what revolution could do. Did she really want to get in the middle of that? Mm-hmm. What's available to her staying in France? I mean, I don't I don't know that the life of a free woman in France was something that she could anticipate anything about. She mm-hmm. that was a very scary prospect. All right, so what are her prospects if she goes back? She can um, try to get a slave husband. 
you know, who maybe, I mean, then they're at the mercy of the entire system of slavery. Can't keep that family together. You know, that person can't even promise you anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you try to hook up with a a white man of any kind? Well, if you're going to choose one, you know, do you want a poor one? Do you want a rich one? Do you want a liar? Do you want somebody who might beat you? Or, for example, here's a guy promising you all kinds of stuff who is somebody who is extremely uh, charming, who obviously had some skill at diplomacy. Uh, She referred to their bargain to free their children as a treaty, which I think bespeaks a kind of bantering between the two of them. Well, I guess you make treaties with France and you make treaties with England. Why don't you make a treaty with me? Mm -hmm. Um, And so from my point of view, there are really strong practical reasons for her to say, you know what, this is maybe the best deal I can get. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it must be said on Thomas Jefferson's behalf that he um, he kept his promise to her. Their children went free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So, what what are, if you could just review very quickly, uh, as, as quickly as possible, I guess, um, <laughs> since I want to get to uh, Patsy and Polly a little bit. Great. Right. Thank you. Uh, the, what is the evidence for and against this liaison? Fairly, well, fairly presented, it. I guess I'd say. Yeah, fairly presented. All right. Let me give you the evidence for first. Okay. The evidence for has been that um, Thomas Jefferson, Duma Malone, who is the great biographer of Thomas Jefferson, did the calculations about uh, of the conceptions of, of Sally Hemings' children that we know about. Um, was Thomas Jefferson there at the time that these children were conceived? And indeed, he was there every single time that Sally Hemings conceived a child that we know of. Jefferson would have been there at the right time for her to have been there. So that's number one. Um, So we can establish his presence. She never, to our knowledge, conceived when he was not at Monticello. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's a second piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't conceive any more children. She's 35 years old when she has her last child. He's in his 60s by this time. Um, and that's the point at which uh, Patsy Jefferson, who is uh, Patsy Jefferson Randolph, who is Thomas Jefferson's older daughter um, and Sally Hemings' half-niece, moves into Monticello. And at the moment when Jefferson comes back to Monticello after his presidency and Patsy moves in, Sally never conceives again. All right. Jefferson is in his mid-60s. Sally is 35. Everybody else on the plantation, and certainly the uh, the women who worked in Thomas Jefferson's households, were urged by Jefferson and others to have husbands, to have families, to marry or to, you know, something like marriage, to have some kind of monogamous relationship on the plantation. To our knowledge, Sally Hemings never had any other partner on that plantation, and there's no suggestion at all that she had any kind of enslaved partner. Um, is there any reason to believe that she they had multiple partners? There's absolutely no reason to believe that. But the most, I think the most powerful piece of evidence right now, of course, is the DNA study by Dr. Eugene Foster and others that was um, published in 1998 in Nature magazine. And that is a study that links genetically Thomas Je- or Sally Hemings' youngest son, Eston Jefferson, to a Jefferson male. And I'm not going to go into all how this whole thing works, but mm-hmm. uh, some Jefferson male uh, was the father of Sally Hemings' sons, mm-hmm. or at least this youngest son. Um, and as I say, there's no reason to assume that her other children were fathered by other people, although some people want to make that case. Mm-hmm. 
Thomas Jefferson is the only Jefferson male that we know about who was there for every conception. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now they want to blame it on Randolph. You know, for many, many years, people said, no, 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 no. It wasn't uh, those kids that look just like Thomas Jefferson. And they they, they admitted, yeah, you know, there are kids running around our house that look like little Thomas Jefferson's. Right. The image of Thomas Jefferson, spitting image comes in carrying the soup type stories. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they said, all right, it's these nephews of Jefferson, these car boys, Peter and and Samuel Carr. But that has never been proved, disproven by the DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. Hey, the Carr brothers are not ruled out. Mm -hmm. So basically the likelihood that it was the likeliest person, um, is that it's Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And now, what about... The propon- we have imposed upon this story a burden of proof that we impose on nothing else. Hmm. Well, yeah. But, well, let's look, just for the, for the sake of... of, of fair, Fairness. Of, of clear, the other yeah, side... All right, yeah, what, so, is, what, what is the evidence against? The evidence against is that he wouldn't have done it. He wasn't the kind of... He wouldn't have done it. This was beneath Thomas Jefferson. He would never have had a liaison with a slave girl... Um, some people say, well, you know, he just believed in the separation of the races. He wouldn't have been for that. Uh, it was a moral impossibility. He wouldn't have been. His his granddaughter, Ellen Coolidge, said this. Some things are simply moral impossibilities. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Jefferson would never have been carrying on a liaison with Sally Hemings in front of his daughters because he loved them too much. Mm-hmm. Well, these types of liaisons, indeed, I say when this would not have been anomalous. Indeed, it's a family tradition. When you've got a father-in-law who has six children with Betty Hemings. When you have um, Sally Hemings' own siblings, one of whom, her oldest sibling, Mary Hemings, who had a common-law relationship with a, one of Jefferson's very good friends in Charlottesville, a, a merchant named Thomas Bell, who freed their children, and, and they inherited his property. When his son-in-law, Jack Epps, actually there's some evidence that he uh, ends up having a similar kind of liaison with a Hemings' niece, I think this is not a moral impossibility. This is a family tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any other evidence that uh, people have that I, I guess disprove is not the right word is that that casts some uh, that reduces casts the probability doubt. of yes. You know uh, what people have said is well at one point he you know he he writes a letter and he says uh, the only charge against me that that um, is true is that when I was a young man. I offered love to a married lady, and they say so. This means that he denied that he that he uh, had an affair with Sally Hemings, and since he denied it, um, it couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've heard that about politicians who say things like, "I did not have sex with that woman," mm-hmm. right? You know, did Thomas Jefferson ever dissemble? Right? I reckon so. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. you know, it all rests on a notion of his character. The the and and. Sorry, are you there? Yeah, I'm still here, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to say, in fact, the people who have tried to say that this couldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened or didn't happen rest their case chiefly on the question of Jefferson's character. And they pose their position as a defense of Thomas Jefferson against scandalous and scurrilous charges. Mm -hmm. These charges were certainly scandalous at their time, some of them were certainly scurrilous at the time, 
But I think in order to enter imaginatively and sympathetically into the universe of Thomas Jefferson and all of these women and the people that I write about, you have to see them as being people who lived in a house divided, who lived in intimate circumstances, who had affection and who had ties of dominance and submission and really complicated relationships with one another and not see this as Thomas Jefferson having some kind of you know moral breakdown, but see this as him finding some comfort and finding uh, a mate who conformed to his ideas of a woman who would, uh, I guess, serve him well and uh, to whom he owed reciprocal obligations. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Uh, I guess I'm just interested again. As I said in the pre-interview, I'm interested in how to how to understand this, how to talk about it in a kind of civil way. Well, what would you say to somebody who, who said, and there are books out there, I looked them up actually. Yeah, William G. Highland. People that, right. that don't really agree with this, and they seem, Absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, what, do you, what do you say to them? Um, well, actually, I've had some, some email conversations with them. And um, what I say to them is, you know, this is, uh, I read the historical evidence this way. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that there is such a very enormous preponderance of historical evidence Leading us, you know, the law of Occam's razor suggests that the likeliest possibility is generally true, Mm -hmm. you know, or at least we might as well presume that to be true. And uh, and so, you know, by that principle, I deduce that Thomas Jefferson is the father of not merely of Eston Hemings, but of all of these children. Mm -hmm. Um, I have and, and I believe and I say to them, you know, what do we lose by acknowledging that Thomas Jefferson lived in a house divided and had an interracial family. Mm-hmm. What do we lose by acknowledging that? We lose, we take him off his pedestal. Uh, we make him more complicated. We make him a real human being. And what we also do is open up an entire history of our country that transcends the apartheid principle. Mm-hmm. We have to start reckoning with not only, you know, what if he did this? Let's get beyond that. Let's not argue about that. And say, let's think instead about the question of what does it mean that he did? Mm-hmm. How did he handle this? How did everyone in this? How did Sally Hemings handle this? How did his daughters handle this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did they? What kind of a world did they live in? And to me, that reveals so much richer a history. And it's really it makes Jefferson. And I say this when I tell people about this book. This makes Jefferson a founding father who belongs to all of us, not just to a few. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the history I want to go forward with. I want to walk through this door. I don't want to argue about this anymore. Hmm. And I want us to think about the history that belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, again, this may not be a question you can answer, uh, but why do you think people, uh, some people, I don't know which people, uh, persist in believing that or saying that uh, Jefferson did not have this liaison? Well, it's a funny thing, when, because when you talk about people, you know, in the same way that um, global warming deniers are, you know, 2% of scientists and get 50% of the airtime, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's the same thing with, with the case of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. The people who are clinging very stubbornly to this notion that this couldn't and wouldn't and shouldn't and didn't um, are a very small minority of people who have done very serious scholarship on Jefferson at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, people, and, and I mean, the people at Monticello have gotten on board with the notion that they need to tell the story of the Jefferson and Hemings family as a story. Um, there are uh, the, the, the really 
serious Jefferson scholars generally acknowledge at this point that there is at least some truth to this, you know, and even people who denied it right up to the moment when the DNA stuff was released. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think a very small minority of people, they, uh, you know, they get dinged on the internet, you get letters from them. I mean, there are a few people that are making a tremendous amount of noise. Mm -hmm. um, and from my point of view, you know, most of the time when we historians write, we tend to believe that uh, you know, we always deal with fragmentary evidence. We always deal with matters of interpretation. We will never have 100% certainty about this. Mm -hmm. A scientist will tell you 100% certainty about things is too much of a burden of proof to impose on science. Mm -hmm. You have to go with a 95% like, uh, likelihood. I think we're there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, yeah, that's, uh, that's well stated. And I, I think um, it's, it's, the whole thing is instructive in many, many ways. I've, I've only been an observer of this. I've not participated in any way and not even really followed it very closely, but it's been interesting uh, hearing a lot of smart people talk about it. So, and, Well, you know, one other thing I would just say, Marshall, is that um, I, the other question I would ask is not whether this happened, but why we care so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to wonder about that, but we're kind of running out of time. But if you want to talk about that, please do. Well, no, I mean, I just think let's leave that open and maybe, you know, maybe I'll get some letters from people or something to mm -hmm. tell me why they, why they think we care. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can understand. Uh, I, I don't study the United States as a historian, and I, do, I certainly don't study the history of race. I, I can understand an interest in it uh, in the same way, I'm kind of interested in whether Shakespeare wrote his plays. You know, uh -huh. like it's yeah. a it's an interesting exercise in the accumulation, interpretation, and probabilizing of historical evidence. It's like a yep. puzzle, and in that way, I can really understand it. Uh, it's also a consequential puzzle in this case. And but asking why it's consequential is kind of a different question, and I I can understand that. I don't uh, I, I don't have any opinion about it one way or another. But um, but I do find it. Yeah, it's a. There's, I guess there's a, there's a lot of very interesting things to say about it. But let's, let's move on to uh, other very interesting people. And you also talk a little bit about uh, Patsy and Polly. Well, they were known as Patsy and Polly, right? But they weren't actually Patsy and Polly. Were they? Yeah, they were Martha and Mary. Yeah. But they're, I, I call them Patsy and Polly in the book because half of the women in there are named Martha and Mary. And I yeah. felt like I just needed people right. to be able to keep them straight. Uh, there's a family tree in the book that I hope – and, and also – a a cast of characters in there to help people keep people straight because these names are tremendously confusing when you've got, you know, Randolph's and Jefferson's, you know, interchangeable and all that. Um, Patsy Jefferson Randolph was a brilliant young woman um, who would became becomes the mother of twelve children, as I said. Wow. Um, yeah. Lived to adult, and what's even crazier about that, Marshall, is that she was estranged from her husband Tom Randolph a lot of that marriage. So you know, and what I say in the book is that you know we think the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings was weird. Let me tell you, if you're looking for weird, Patsy and Tom Randolph is the place to go. Imagine it was stormy. That's the word that comes to mind. <laughs> volatile. Yeah. Volatile. yeah. Um, and he was he was a kind of manic depressive character. I mean, he's a He's a whole story in himself, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for him, and even though he acts like a jerk some of the time, because who would want to be Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law, I, I think, is, is a hard question to, to try to live up to that particular example. And I think throughout her life, Patsy Jefferson's desire was, you know, her mother dies when she's 10 years old. She becomes her father's 
rock and redeemer. I mean, she rides with him on his manic rides of to escape from Monticello when he's grieving and crying and, and breaking down. And she's the only one with him all the time. She goes to Paris with him. She's his interim housekeeper and then ultimately his permanent housekeeper. He dotes absolutely on all these grandchildren running around. Um, and she lives with her father as much as she lives with her husband. And I think that's an interesting person to be. She is a uh, one of the best educated people in the United States at her time and, and determined to educate her children. And that's a, a, a hallmark of her. And I think she's a real complicated character. I mean, this is, after all, the person who's having to live in the same household and be pregnant at the same time as her father, her half-aunt, who is also her father's slave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, raising her half-siblings who are also, I mean, you know, it gets her also her cousin. It, it gets complicated complicated right next to these these slave children who are also going to go free the Mm -hmm. hardest thing about poor patsy is that thomas jefferson says you know everything i do i do for you and your sister he actually says this to polly um who's the younger sister um everything is for you too Mm -hmm. nobody has the power that you will understand this marshall as a father of children Nobody he has the power, he says to his daughters, nobody has the power to make me so happy or so miserable as you. <laughs> yeah, that, one, that one cuts both ways, doesn't it? That's I love clever. it. Yeah, you know, I got a big I mean, smile on my face. Yeah, think about being the person feeding <laughs> that, right? Yeah. He's very manipulative and loving father. Yeah. We know that these yeah. things are not mutually exclusive. Right, no, not um, at all. Yeah. But, and controlling. Um, but he's, he loves. Patsy is sort of his, his, uh, the one who's like him. Polly is like her mother, um, and smaller, more shy, um, identifies with her aunt, struggles against Thomas Jefferson. And I think people that read the book, I think they will be fascinated by Polly's struggles against her controlling father to have some measure of control herself. Mm-hmm. But she's also the one who isn't the sturdy childbearer and, and ends up very, very sad story, dying, dying of mm-hmm. uh, complications of childbirth mm-hmm. um, with her um, second pregnancy or third pregnancy, I think it is. Um, very, just a heartbreaking story. Um, these two young women, however, they're tremendously well-educated. They went to convent schools in France there's enormous cache of letters. People can go onto the Monticello website and, and see family letters, letters between um, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson and his daughters, you know, letters that they write to each other and to, and to other members of the family. These are really fascinating women, and, um, and I got to know them pretty well. They're a contrast with each other. Um, the only one who survives him is Patsy. And after all these years of saying, I do everything for you, and it's all about leaving you a legacy, when he dies, he dies $100,000 in debt. Oh, and, you know, everything, everything, everything had to be sold. Oh. And here she is, you know, she is, Patsy is left penniless and homeless and devastated. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but... And so he couldn't, you know, I say that the thing that broke his heart as he was aging and knew that his debts were mounting up, it broke his heart to know that he failed as a provider and a protector for his most beloved daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but he kept his promise to Sally Hennings. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, I would love to go on and talk more about this, but I'm sorry to say that we're out of time. And I wanted to save it just a brief moment uh, so that you could answer our traditional final question, as I told you, and it is this. 
What are you working on now? Oh, yeah. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> well, um, I have two projects on the drawing board. One is a historical novel because I, I published um, fiction in the past. And so I'm, I'm actually thinking about a historical novel that would involve a family that is like this uh, set of shadow families, this house divided, um, but f- involve four sisters, two, two enslaved and two free and uh, I've been thinking of it as a kind of southern version of Little Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one possibility, and the other possibility, and I and I'm pretty sure I'm kind of getting going on this right now, is that I want to do a uh, a, a kind of um, Life and Times biography of Annie Oakley. Oh wow! Kind yeah, of that do one. Yeah. for Annie Oakley what Hampton Sides did for Kit Carson. Yeah. Is my theory. Right. So yeah. so that's the other one. I like that Annie Oakley idea very much. I don't know. I'm excited about it. Me, yeah, I just like that stuff. Anyway, well, but you know, it, it's uh, those are terrific projects, and I hope that you can come on and talk to us about them when you're done with them. So, uh, Virginia, I want to say thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Virginia Scharf about her new book, The Women Jefferson Loved. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>